Mother and child, come with me. Sisters young and old, now we see. Let's all come together. Mm -hmm. Come together. wanted to know what women in the South are thinking about feminism and to give Southern women a voice in the feminist movement. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I, I think I do, yes. Absolutely. I don't like defining myself as a feminist because when I tell someone I'm a feminist, they automatically go that way. While I will say, yes, I am a feminist, there's, I know that there's going to be explanation after that. Like, I'm going to have to explain myself. So, so... I feel like this Southern culture, especially in the Black culture, we were always like, you know, men first, women second. And then also, I didn't know what feminist meant. I feel like I am a feminist. I'm just not an aggressive feminist. I'm a feminist. I'm probably a quieter feminist. And I just pick and choose which things to be stronger feminist advocate about. I do believe feminism is for everybody. Welcome back. This is Lee, the host of the Fem South podcast, and I'm so excited that you decided to listen in today because we're going to be talking about women healers. So this is part one of our series on women healers. And if you listen to the introductory episode, you'll remember that I defined women healers as midwives, herbalists, medicine women, spiritual leaders, and conjurers, just to name a few. Uh, there are many iterations of women healers across many different cultures. And so in this series, we are going to be looking at a few of these roles and trying to answer the question I asked in the introduction about what distinguishes women healers from mainstream medicine and what are the untold stories of women being persecuted for their roles as healers. One thing that I can say that distinguishes women healers is their ancestral past and birthing is the oldest tradition because we've essentially been birthing babies since the beginning of humanity. Ironically, that role has been taken from us by patriarchy, by the development of modern medicine and science. And so here we are in 2021 talking about midwifery and doula services as this revolutionary movement to empower women. But really what we're talking about is a remembering of something that we were doing for so long before it was taken from us. And so the story of the development of modern birthing in the United States could not be told without talking about enslaved women, enslaved black midwives and the granny midwives who were instrumental in the development of modern gynecology in the United States. So here to talk with me today about all of this is Nafisa Roberts as Salafia, who is a doula with Daughters of Daisy Community Labor and Postpartum Doula Services and the Mbegu Birthing Project. Nafisa also has an online skincare company called Nitty Gritty Skincare, which you can find at nittygrittyskincare.com, where she sells all kinds of wonderful things like black soaps and oils and shea butter and tinctures 
and she makes delicious herbal teas. So please check out her skincare product. It's so fantastic. Nafisa is also a mother of six children. And so she's all about helping mommy stay healthy and well supported. So I'm so happy to have her on the podcast with me today. And also a quick disclaimer, this episode was produced using Zoom technology, uh, which is not great for sound quality. And so the sound does go in and out. I hope that it's not too problematic and ask that you bear with me as I learn more about how to do this remote podcasting during times of COVID. I do hope that this will be the last podcast that I have to put out using Zoom technology. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get started. Good morning, Nafisa. Thank you so much for joining me. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited about our show today. How are you feeling about it? I'm excited. I I couldn't really rest. I was thinking about it all last night and got up ready to go this morning. Tried to have a little bit of meditative time and um, made my cacao. So I feel a little grounded now and ready to go. <laughs> Well, good. Let's go ahead and just dive in then. Um, Nafisa, you're a doula living in Mobile, Alabama, which yes. is only about 30 minutes or so away from Fairhope. And it's, I know. Yeah, it's crazy because it's so different. The two places seem so different. There seems to be a lot more activity and culture and industry. And because of that, there seems to be a lot of cultural difference between the two places. I don't know. Do you feel like that? To a certain extent. Yeah, I do. So you're a doula living in Mobile, and you yeah. also have a business. You have so several I businesses. Have, yeah, I was going to say, I have Daughters of Daisy Marie Doula Services, and then I have NittyGrittySkinCare.com, which we specialize in black soap and um, shea butter and uh, herbal tinctures and teas, herbal teas and good stuff like sage and incense, you know, things that ground you. <laughs> we sell all that, yeah. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do as a doula and how you came to this work? Sure. So I am a labor and postpartum. I I, I would start off saying labor, but I have a prenatal labor and postpartum doula. And so what I do is provide um, empowerment or help show women how to be advocates for themselves, empower themselves. I give emotional support, mental support, spiritual support to families in the birthing process. And I I do a little bit of everything. <laughs> My main focus really right now is kind of shifting to postpartum support and making sure that mothers are supported well after giving birth. So I go in and I do um, vaginal steams and a little bit of massage and teas and snacks for the postpartum mom and make sure that she's well and any type of lighthouse work or anything that's needed. I do that as well. So um, yeah, but I'm there for the whole family, for the mother and the father and the children involved or the partner involved. So yeah, that's what I do. I got, I didn't answer your question about how I got started. I got started, um, which is really interesting because it seems like years ago when my son was born, who's he's 19 now, And when I got pregnant with him, uh, that was the first time that I realized that I really didn't want to go back to the hospital and have a baby. So I started looking at home births, but I wasn't quite able to find the the midwife to do that uh, home birth that I needed. So I ended up going into the hospital with the midwife through a uh, 
uh, obstetrician and I had the most horrific experience. <laughs> and in that I had, I made a vow that I would uh, work to help women um, do what I wanted to do and that's have a home birth. And so as time went on and, you know, I had another child, I didn't really have the time to study midwifery like I wanted to. And so um, when I had my last baby, I decided to have a home birth and kind of step into my truth and my power at that point. Uh, and she was born at home. She was nine pounds, 11 ounces. And I was gave birth to her with a midwife, which was absolutely phenomenal. And that experience just, um, it changed my life. It changed me as a woman. And I realized this is the work that I wanted to do. Uh, unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize that my great-grandmother was a midwife and I had heard that she had delivered my father, but I never put two and two together, you know, because we didn't really talk about that in my family. And so even though I knew that the knowledge was there uh, in terms of postpartum care and all those things for my grandmother, which was uh, my father's mother, I didn't realize that we had so much rich history of midwifery in our family. So um, after my daughter was born a few years later, things just aligned and I ended up meeting someone who was a midwife and I had a conversation with her. I told her that I wanted to be a midwife and she was like, Oh, she was so excited. And she was like, well, you know, here's my information. But it took almost a year and a half before I really got in touch with her again, because I was so busy with other things. And I had a dream that I gave birth to myself. And that was kind of like my confirmation that this is what I was supposed to be doing. And so I forged a relationship with her and I started training with her as an apprentice uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And so I did hospital births, home births. I worked um, with Marsha Ford out of Atlanta Medical Hospital. I had the pleasure of working with Providence Midwifery in Alpharetta, Georgia. So I had beautiful experiences in birth work there. And then I made the transition to Mobile, Alabama through my full-time job. So that's how I ended up here. And um, so now I'm trying to forge new new things in Mobile. <laughs> yeah, we talked about this earlier, uh, what it was like to come to Mobile and to get here and find that there weren't a lot of um, midwives and certainly not a lot of Black midwives. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what was it like when you got here? It was disheartening. It really was. But I found it interesting because the more that I talked to women of all of all races, the more I realized that women needed um, they needed help, they needed information, and they needed advice. And so I began to just have conversations with women, women that I didn't even know. I saw them when they were pregnant. We would just I would strike up a conversation and find out, you know, what was going on. And so I kind of became. Uh, a community doula, which is what I was trained to be, and that's where my heart is. It's working in the community in a grassroots way and just educating women on what their rights are, what their choices are, their options are. And so from there, I decided to form a group here in Mobile called the Mbago Birthing Project, which is a group of ladies who we get together once a month. Of course, not during COVID. We haven't met up, and it's been a while, but um, we got together once a month and talked about birthing in Mobile and what that's like and how do we support each other? How do we bring community back to birthing because it's lost, unfortunately. And so that's kind of what we do is try to support each other, support our mommies that are having babies, support mommies that need help with childcare, um, food, 
but we've been really trying to gain momentum and get other women involved. But I do find the resistance here, which that's also disheartening. (laughs) But so we just keep going because we know what our purpose is and what we're here to do and uh, just keep moving. So let's talk about the legacy of Black midwifery and gynecology in the South. Since the last time we spoke, you suggested a few good books for me to read to learn more about this, one of which I have read since we last spoke, and that is Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology by Deidre Cooper Owens, which is a fantastic book that gives so much um, well-researched history into how American gynecology was really built on the facts of Black women during slavery. And so I know that we can't possibly cover all of this because it's so huge, but I do want to hear your thoughts about it, and I'd like to hear you talk about how you feel connected to this legacy. That's a deep question. Um, First, I want to say that this book by Deidre Cooper Owens definitely is just a piece of the puzzle, right? But it's a piece of the puzzle that kind of gives an eye view into what midwifery um, may have looked like before um, Dr. Sims came about, right? So midwifery was a practice that was something that we had been doing forever, of course, since Egyptian times. Um, If you look at the hieroglyphics in Egypt, there's a birthing chair, right? Uh, A drawing of a birthing chair. So we already know that the history of birthing when it comes to African culture. And so now when you talk about the transatlantic slave um, that came over to the Americas, you begin to see the shifting of the culture being lost, right, of birthing. A lot of the slaves that were brought uh, over were young women, maybe between the ages of 12 to 15. So they had no knowledge of uh, birthing, right? And so um, coming from the Caribbean, a lot of slaves were transported from the Caribbean once they came from Africa. They were transported from the Caribbean into the Americas. And being that they had no knowledge, then you had the white midwives that came um, from European culture were training these women to birth babies. Now, there's a gap in the history because during the time that the white women were birthing these slaves, there was payment being made, right? So there was a lot of bookkeeping that was going on during that time. And there was a transition that was made because as the bondswomen or slave women were being trained, there was a transition, uh, a shift in payment. So payment was no longer being given for uh, midwifery work because everybody was slaves at this point. And so I think that's probably what caused that gap in history there in um, in memorandum or, or a gap in record keeping because there was no longer a need to keep record of what was going on at that point. So that might have been around maybe the early, mid-1700s that that began to happen. And so we don't have, the only thing that we have is that's on record really is records of what white midwives were able to do at that point. And then you have that gap and then it picks up again where white midwives were recording actually what was happening when they were training 
enslavement wives, right? Because there had to be an establishment of experience and knowledge for these uh, black midwives to be able to go into the field of midwifery to, to birth other slaves. Does that make sense what I'm saying? I'm trying to explain it in a way that everybody can understand. So at that point, you see the bridge that black midwives are connecting between plantations. So you have black midwives who were traveling from plantation to plantation who were able to pass on messages. They were able to um, say, for instance, if they had uh, a family member at one plantation and another family member at the other plantation, they were able to send messages and, and kind of keep those ties between families. So midwives played a role that was, they had a grand role, right? The grand is not even a word to describe them. They were able to create a culture. They were able to bridge those gaps and be that barrier and that softness between the slave master and a slave woman and, a, and her family. So for example, it was, it was well known amongst slave owners that the idea of Black women being able to have feeling, um, being able to have pain was something that they didn't think that Black women had. But the midwife knew that that wasn't the case, right? So she was able to provide that space for Black women to be able to birth and kind of became their protector and advocate during that time. And so for Black midwives, they became the uh, cornerstone of the community. They created the community because if, if slave woman A was having a baby, then that meant she was probably gathering what she needed for this particular birth, um, gathering the herbs, gathering the nutrition that was needed. And so that all caused for community to come together around that birth. And so she carried all of this on her shoulders. Not only that, but also carrying along the observation of what was happening. So you had mothers who were giving birth whose babies were passing away. So she also became the grief counselor. She also became the one who was the grief counselor for babies that were taken away to the slave trade. So the history, that's why I said in the beginning, it's so many layers to it, right? Midwives were the cornerstone of the communities. And without them, I don't necessarily know if there would have been survival for us as Black people during that time. They laid that foundation and they became uh, the doctors of the community, right? The ones who the, not just the, the mothers would go to, but also the fathers would go to and the children would go to for care for herbal care and things that she would provide that support. And even if there was things outside of just healthcare, but also financial support, food support, she was kind of the one who could spearhead those things because she was, she, she held that status in the community, right? And she was the go-between the slave owners and the slaves. And so her role was one that I think was erased because of the status, right? Because of what that meant. So it's, it's a um, auspicious role to have, or, or it was an auspicious role to have during that time. It still is, but during that time, it was, um, it was so important to kind of hold the, the bonds together, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and one of the things that um, Owens talks about 
which I found really interesting and didn't really fully know was how instrumental they were in developing the modern gynecology or the uh, what becomes this takeover of like what you said a minute ago, this role that women have been playing for thousands of years, you know, women Mm -hmm. have been the midwives, the birthers, Mm -hmm. all the things that you're talking about, the counselors, the people that take care of the emotional and health of the communities. I mean, Americans are just building off of what Europeans have been doing to women already for several hundreds of years, Mm -hmm. which is to usurp the role and marginalize women, criminalize women, um, kill and torture women, you know, Mm -hmm. for this knowledge. And you see this industry developing, especially in the South, as she describes, because of slavery, because of their access to Black women's bodies for experimentation, for knowledge that they couldn't have from white women. And also they're taking their knowledge that they had mm-hmm. and, and taking ownership of that knowledge and developing it into an academic institution, you know, and then it becomes this white male institution that requires training and certification and, legitima- and legitimizing and well, I think if I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think I just wanted to say this before I forget my point on that is because it became a, a industry that was financed, right? And so there was money that was coming through this, and it was always that control factor when it came to money. Because if if you and that's why I said in her book you have to go back to the very beginning too, because now you can see that how that control was taken, right? How it slowly came into play because midwives during that time held the key to financial security, right? Because if they were able to birth slaves, healthy slaves, then that meant more money. And so that just kind of perpetuated over time. And so the only thing that really was there was the idea of being able to control and gain more financial security, right? And so you kind of see that happening over time with how women were used and, uh, like you said, used as guinea pigs. I always say they use that word, used as guinea pigs um, for the discovery of, you know, new medical interventions. And all these things go back to financial security. What does that look like, right? If I'm able to save this slave woman, save her body so that she can have more babies, then that means there's more financial security in her. So I think all of it's connected to a certain extent. And so there's always that, been that control, control of having, um, being able to take over and have control of the financial security, of being able to manage and make sure that people are in play and in line the way that they needed them to be. And so, yeah, it's a patriarchal thing. And it's really sad. It really is sad when you start to really delve deep into it. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around some of it. I can't even imagine some of the things that happened to slave women during that time. It's, I, there's no words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also just sad that the, the impact that that had was enormous to the point where as, you know, these men developed gynecology as this male-dominated practice, this white male-dominated practice, we slowly see women, and especially Black women who had been doing this work, being marginalized, being vilified, 
And to the point where now, I mean, we've only legalized midwifery in the state of Alabama since 2017. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you think not, about that. Not, not surprising. <laughs> not surprising. It's because it still goes back to male domination. It goes back to industry. Because if, if women stop going into hospitals, then what? Doctors don't get paid, right? Which is a male-dominated, a white male-dominated industry. So if you have women that stand up and say, hey, you know what? We're not taking this anymore. We're going, we're, we're having home births. And we have the midwives that are going to do it. The state of Alabama are saying they, they have the right to say and they can say, no, you won't. You're going to still enter into these hospitals and have babies. And so that's why you have so many women that cross state lines to have babies. They go to Tennessee, they go to Florida, they go to Mississippi so that they can be able to exercise their rights and options. And so that's part of the issue is that, again, it's a male, a white male dominated uh, industry. Money rules, you know, at the end of the day. And you know, status. Even, yeah. yeah. I would even, say even in medical status, because she talked a lot about the journals and the publications and the career advancements, you know, and all these accolades that the men were seeking uh, in the scientific community, right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of disgusting. It really is. <laughs> it's, it's disgusting. And um, I just, I, you know, honestly, I don't even really have words for it. I, I, I don't even know how to even feel about it. And it's funny because when I heard Deidre Cooper Owens speak over at the University of South Alabama, I felt a certain kind of way when I left. And it was because after giving all this information, right, and, and the research that she had given about what happened to these women, there was one person that stood up and asked the question, well, what about, you know, are we just going to throw aside the um, medical interventions and medical research that has been made when it comes to things like cancer and this and that, you know, do we just throw that aside and, you know, forget about all those things that were done? And I thought to myself, wow, it's still missing the point. But yeah, but these things are done off the backs of women who didn't necessarily give consent. So how does that make it right in any way? It doesn't. And that's the only thing that we can come up with is what about the research that was done here and here well wait, wait you missed the whole point of the the book and the talk right so I left from there just feeling like wow people still just don't get it still just don't get it and it's such a medical model that you forget the human side yeah and we are left wondering now why modern medicine has such a hold and why modern medicine seems to be so disconnected from plant medicines and plant knowledge and in this discussion about these traditional healing practices. And it's not that they don't have them. You know, you can look at so many supplements and vitamins and see plants in them, but the way in which we talk about it seems to be missing. It's, it's pharmaceutical over here. These are pharmaceuticals and supplements. And then there's herbalism and plant medicines and plant-based practices. They're kind of like this new age spiritual component that's over here and they're separate, you know, but that separation has a history and it's definitely oriented in what we're talking about. Like 
even like the procedures, the bedside manners that these male doctors would have, the invasive techniques that they would use, the lack of anesthesia on these women that they would that they wouldn't give them anesthesia that even like when I looked at the video, um, all my babies, which is another important documentary, you could just see it. And I don't even know if the filmmaker saw, it seems as though he wasn't aware, but you could just see it on their faces. Like there was this scene where this young black woman, she looked like she couldn't be more than maybe 18 or 19, very young, Mm -hmm. you know, was in this tiny small medical room and this white male doctor comes in and just laser on the table with their feet up and has this vaginal exam and it seems like so invasive and I kept thinking the the threat of like being raped by white men is still probably very prevalent in her mind and yet here she is in this vulnerable position with no consideration or bedside manner for her and it just I just think about that and even like Ina Mae Gaskin talks about her first birth where she was strapped down you know, strapped down while you're having a baby. Yeah. Well, of course you have to look at the fact that it's men doing this. (laughs) So men have no idea what it's like. So they have no connection to it. If you were to strap men down and uh, do some type of procedure on men, then it would probably be a different type of situation, right? But they had no connection to um, what a woman goes through. So for them, it's, it's like nothing. And so that's where the disconnect comes in at. And then on top of the fact that they feel it's superior to women, you know, we have no say in, in what goes on with our bodies. So, yeah, unfortunately, it's just been something that's been perpetuated over and over and over again. And that's why we are still in 2021 to this day, still fighting for these same abilities to be able to birth our babies the way that we need to, for people to get the medical care that they need, because we're still fighting the same fight. So, yeah, I just wanted to touch on the fact that because of all those things and what you said earlier about you know, women having that fear or maybe that anxiety when they're put into that compromising position, when they're laying on a table and you have this man standing over you as you expose yourself, that fear is still present here. I do believe that. I believe that women do feel, um, some women, I'm not going to say all women, but some women still feel uh, uncomfortable in those type of situations. And Unfortunately, we've been led to believe that it's okay. It's like you, you get comfortable. And I can say for myself, as a Black woman, I've fallen into that. You know, my first son was born to, when I had him, I was, he was, in, I was in Tampa, Florida, but he was born at Women's St. Joe's Hospital there. And I had a white Jewish male doctor. And at the time, I thought that he knew what he was doing, you know, but I didn't know any better. But now when I look back 20, almost 24 years later, I'm like, wow, I was really asleep to a certain extent. I had him in the hospital, but I didn't have any pain medicine. I didn't have Pitocin. Um, I'm sorry, I had Pitocin, but I didn't have any epidural. I didn't have epidural, any pain medicine. And so um, when I had him, all the nurses were coming to my room and they were going, are you the lady? 
that had the baby without any pain medicine. Like it was so weird to them that I made that decision. But I think at that time I started to have that awakening with my first child, with my second son, um, with my, with my first son, second child, I started to have that awakening then, but I wasn't quite there yet because the way that I birthed was, was very, um, I'm going to say inhumane. I think when I look back on it and my son was taken away from me immediately after he came out and put into an incubator and rolled off. And so when I look back on those things, you you think, wow, it could have been so different, right? If I had known what I know now. So we do it and we don't even realize that we're doing it. We don't even realize that we're doing it. I I understand exactly what you're saying because I've had two children and I wish I would have known then what I know now. I wish I would have known that I had the option. You know, I had my two kids in military hospitals and my birth experiences, I wouldn't say they were traumatic in any way, but I would have liked to have thought about the option of having them naturally. And it just wasn't even a consideration. We we were not able to have midwives, but like my experience being pregnant was very traumatic because I have hypernemesis. I have extreme hypernemesis in my first mm-hmm. trimester. And I just wasn't treated well in either of my pregnancies by the doctors. And it wasn't until I got out of actual the system and came to a doctor here where I was actually, somebody actually said to me, this is really serious. I think you need to go to the hospital. And that doctor had a concern in their voice, like they cared what what I was experiencing, what I was going through. And up until that point, nobody seemed to really care. I was just getting shoveled through the system. I'd have to go to the emergency room to get all my IVs because I had to get an IV like every week. Rather than doing it in a nice, comfortable room in an office, I had to go to the ER. You know, it was very traumatic for me. Traumatic, yeah. And nobody ever asked like, what's going home? What's going on at home? Or what's your what's your anxiety level like? Like, none of that. I didn't feel heard. I didn't feel like I had any, um, anybody to really like talk to on a deep level about all of this. So, well, that's the difference between the medical model of care when it comes to pregnancy and the midwifery model of care. And the midwifery model of care is that mind, body, soul, spirit type of care where the midwife is going to care about the woman's well-being first, right? What's going on with her psyche? What's going on with her emotionally? What's going on with her at home? You know, what's going on with her her and her partner? So there's all that involved in the midwifery model of care as opposed to the medical model. Um, and I was saying that not all midwives are into the mid- the midwife model of care because there are midwives that are connected to obstetricians where that's still that same sterile kind of care. Because I've, I've, I've experienced that myself, uh, having a midwife who was, it was just like having an obstetrician and it wasn't, it wasn't anything any different. And so midwives have the ability to have that spiritual connection and, and, and hone in on those things that are really important to the mother, you know, and that can kind of direct which way to go in the care of her and the baby. So yeah, I'm just curious to know why the military wouldn't allow midwives. That's interesting to me. Now that you say that, I think I probably, they probably had midwives in the hospital system, but it was never articulated to me that I could have a midwife. 
And it certainly wasn't an option to have a home birth mm-hmm. because I'm sure it has everything to do with insurance. And oh, yeah. Everything is connected to the dollar. <laughs> everything is always connected to the dollar. It's really sad. It doesn't take much to have a baby and it's not expensive to have a baby. But then you go into the hospital and you're looking at a $20,000 bill from having a baby, depending on what part of the country you're in and what hospital you're in. Well, people can't afford that to to pay for you know twenty thousand dollars to have a baby. It doesn't cost anything to have a baby because the baby's going to come regardless. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> the baby's going to come regardless. Um, and as women, we instinctively know how and what to do. We really do. We've been like you said, we've been doing it for thousands of years, just like any other mammal that gives birth. They instinctively know what to do. I was watching a video the other day of an elephant giving birth. And it was just so beautiful as I was watching. I'm like, wow, it's amazing how we just know what to do. So when the baby came out, uh, she began to blow onto the baby elephant to, I guess, get it to, to make sure it was breathing and then to clean it off. And so all of a sudden, all these other elephants gathered around as it was like a greeting of the, the new baby. And even the little baby elephants were coming all around. They, they circled around the baby elephant as a layer of protection as well from other animals who could come and harm it. And so it's just a beautiful process. And it's the same thing for us as well. This is what we do as human beings, but we've lost that connection to ourselves. And so this is one of the great things about midwives that we kind of, you know, midwives still bring that same kind of connection back, right, to what we know how to do naturally. And that's the beauty of of this, of birth work. And this is the issue. And one of the things we talk about, too, in our Embegel group is the connection to community and what that looks like for a pregnant woman. Community is so important. It, it, it can make a woman's experience totally different when she has the support of friends and family. And, I, and, it, and it may not always be family, you know, it can just be friends and people in the community who are concerned who offer a lending ear or a meal or, you know, to come in and do some light chores or to pick up some groceries for you. I mean, it's so many things that you can do to make a, a mother's experience a little lighter. And so, we've gotten away from community and everybody's kind of in their own corners and doing their own thing and worried about themselves and afraid to look at their neighbor and afraid to connect with their neighbors. But that's part of the process of being connected is getting to know who needs what in the community. And you don't have to be a person's best friend. I'm not saying, you know, you've got to get into somebody's business and you need to know what they're doing every second of the day. But just saying, hey, is there something that I can do for you? Is everything okay? And a lot of times, and I had talked about this with someone else too, we're ashamed and we feel afraid to ask for help. You know, we don't want to say, you know what? I really am not feeling good today. I, I could use a meal or I could use somebody going to the grocery store for me today or I could just use a lending ear today, you know, but we feel like as women, we have to be able to do it all. I can carry this baby. I can work. I can cook. You know, I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan. 
you know, <laughs> all that, that, that mantra that we were given when we were younger, that we could do everything we can, but just with a little help and it's okay, you know, and we shouldn't expect for our mommies to jump out and start those things right away, you know, but this society has put that expectation on us, you know, mm-hmm. six weeks, you're back at work. And if you're not back at work at six weeks, you, you run the risk of losing your job. So many women are faced with that, of having to go back to work before they're ready, having to find ways to breastfeed at work, because now they are thrown back into this environment of being separated with their baby, not because they want to, but because they have to. You know, that's where community comes into play. And how do we support these mommies? How do we make it easier for them? Yeah, I love that. You know, I didn't feel like I had that support, that community of support when I was pregnant. And I think it had everything to do with the culture I was in. You know, I was in a military culture at the time. And I think I would have had a whole different experience had I been in a culture that supported my body's ability to give birth naturally and um, rather than seeing it as a medical condition, you know, pregnancy and birth as a medical condition. (laughs) And how would I felt differently if somebody explained to me how empowering it could feel if I gave birth naturally. And that's not to say that, you know, people who don't give birth naturally aren't empowered, but I think I at least would have liked to have had that thought. And I never had that thought. It was always like, oh, you're going to want your medicine. You're going to want to have (laughs) all of this pain medicine. Trust me, you know? Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) So I went into it with fear. I went into it with a lot of fear. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's what we, that's what society tells us. You know, we look at um, television shows where put it, all this fear is put into us about birthing. You know, you see the women on the television shows and the movies, they're laying in the bed and they're sweaty and they're screaming to the top of their lungs and everybody's in panic and running around. And then all of a sudden the baby shoots out. It's like, that is so not how birthing happens. So, and that's, we've been indoctrinated like that for years for years. And to me, that is on purpose, right? Because that means it drives the herd to the hospital. And like you said, people said, oh, well, you're going to, you're going to give birth without any pain medicine. That's, you can't do that. You have to have pain medicine. You know, you're not going to be able to do it, but that's not true because we were doing it long before the introduction of medicine. So um, we know that's not the case, but it's the mind over matter. And being able to be surrounded by uh, women who support you. Uh, And I hate to just say women, but men too, communities that support you in the process. So with all the talk about the infant mortality rate in Alabama, especially among Black women and women of color, why do you think it's important for women like you, doulas and midwives, to step in at this moment and really build this strong foundation in order to change these statistics? Well, because research shows that doulas definitely help when it comes to uh, infant mortality and maternal mortality. The risk of death is lowered. The risk of having um, unwanted birth outcomes is lowered. And so that's why it's so important for us to get down and, 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 and get into the communities and really work and start having conversations with new mommies about it and what signs to look for what questions to ask when they go into the, the obstetrician's office? Um, what type of support are they getting after they come home from the hospital? Because, of course, that 
during that postpartum time that they're at a greater risk of postpartum depression. They're at greater risk of other unwanted you know, outcomes to happen. And so it's important for us as Black women to get into the communities where we can relate to each other and start to have those conversations. And I think the reason why we're having these issues here in Alabama is because it's just not enough of us. It really isn't enough of us. And, um, you know, Black women need to be able to connect with other Black women who, ha- who can say, hey, it's okay, right? It's okay to go to the obstetrician and listen to your obstetrician and have a conversation and a dialogue, right? You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to feel like you don't have a voice because you do. It's okay to demand what you need to demand for yourself and what you want. So uh, our role, and not just our role as Black women, but all women to get involved and say, hey, you know, let's, let's join together and build a community around this because that's how we're going to succeed and that's how we're going to raise these numbers. It's just getting women to trust. And I think that's what I've experienced here in Mobile is an issue of trust um, because we have been so indoctrinated by the white male dominated industry that we don't believe each other, right? When it comes from our mouths, you'll take it from a white doctor before you'll take it from a black doula or midwife, which is really interesting, but that's just the way it is. You know, and that's not just with birthing, but that's with all kinds of health issues that we have in our communities. And and the reason why I know that is because I work directly with clients in my other business where we do herbs and tinctures and we talk to people about, you know, alternative medicine and people will choose to take an over-the-counter prescription before they choose to take an herb. And so the question is, why is that? You know, what is causing that distrust? And what is causing people to put trust in, in the doctors, which, you know, and I'm not saying that you can and that you shouldn't consult your doctor, but you should have a conversation. You should be able to say, hey, what about this doctor? What do you think about this herb over here, doctor? And get that information, kind of empower yourself, because we all have sovereignty over our own bodies. We all make our own choices for what we want for our bodies. And so I think that's probably something that we have to kind of, teach people more of too and show people that you have a right to say no to a medicine. You have a right to say, well, I don't feel comfortable with that. You know, I think about my aunt, we, we, we had a, a meeting with a doctor um, last year and the doctor handed her this prescription and my aunt said, I, I will not take that. You know, what is, what is my alternative? How do I get around this? You know, I don't want to take medicine for the rest of my life or I don't feel comfortable with that. And so so funny that she refused that medicine and then she went to another doctor later on and the doctor said, I don't know why they even su- subscribe that medicine for you. you. You know, you don't really even know what to do in, in a situation like that. But, you know, we have to use our voices when, we, when we're in these settings. We really do. And, and we have to know that it's, the information doesn't stop with the doctor. It really starts with you doing your own research and finding out about what needs, you know, you have personally that you need to address because it could be a mind, spiritual issue, right? Psychological issue a lot of times. A lot of times you go to the doctor for psychological issues and take these drugs and it's, it's a different fix, a different kind of fix for it, right? You know, I also, when I was pregnant, had a doctor 
give me a prescription for, I think, some kind of antidepressant because, like I said, I had extreme anxiety with my hypernemesis because I was, you know, puking all the time, constantly. Yeah. And I went home with that prescription and took it, and I was drooling on myself. Like, I couldn't even function. And my mother, who was caring for me at the time, demanded that I stop, which I was like, fine, because this is crazy. And then when we went back in and told the doctor, it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, that happens. So we do put all this trust in these doctors and not to say that doctors don't deserve trust because I hate to vilify doctors, but there are a lot of ways in which we have learned to be skeptical of our own intuition of, of other alternative medicines. Like we'll quickly take a antidepressant over a tincture mm -hmm. or even like a plant-based medicine that has been for thousands of years known to have, you know, this healing quality and we won't even go there. Right, right. And doctors push that too. Doctors continuously, I think, reinforce the distrust in these, these remedies because of course they are supported by the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they are the voice of the pharmaceutical industry, which we are now seeing as the opioid crisis has become a crisis that right. there is a problem with that. But Right, right. Well, I think, you know, like you said, you didn't want to vilify doctors. I, that, I, I agree with you in that sense that I think that there needs to be some type of retraining as well for doctors in terms of um, honing in more on the nutritional aspects and mind, body, spirit, especially when it comes to those things like depression. And so, yeah, I do agree that some people do need more uh, maybe they do need a prescription, you know, to handle more serious issues. Because I've gone through it myself personally, where I've gone to a doctor and said, okay, well, I'm, I'm feeling this way or I'm feeling that way. I'm, I'm having severe postpartum depression or PMS, and I'm suddenly given a prescription to take, as opposed to um, having a conversation and seeing what my home life is like or what my diet is like or you know, I have all these children, you know, is that related to what you're feeling? So none of those questions are asked. It's kind of just, well, here's the prescription and you'll feel better tomorrow. And when I took the prescription, I felt like crap. Like you were saying, I stopped taking it because there was no way I could function with taking that medicine and, and, and raising children and living in my daily life. So yeah, you want to find the other alternatives that are going to give you better options and, and give you, allow you to still function with your own inner being and not something that's so invasive and takes over your body to where you, you don't know whether you're coming or going. And so those kind of conversations need to be had. And I think doctors need to be trained a little differently in how to deal with those type of issues because it, be, it can become a beautiful relationship. It really can. You can develop a beautiful relationship with doctors. And I had a client recently, uh, a mommy who was going back and forth with her doctor about the labor process and how she wanted it to happen. And she really felt uncomfortable with having this conversation with her doctor. And so the one thing that I kept trying to have a conversation with her about was how to have that conversation with your doctor. You know, it doesn't have to be a fight. It doesn't have to be ugly. You don't have to come in mad, but just sit down and talk to her and be honest about how you feel. And what you need from her. Because at the end of the day, she works for you, right? It's, it's not the other way around. Just saying, hey, I'm feeling anxiety. I'm feeling anxious. I feel uncomfortable when you say these words to me. 
can we change the language in, in, in when we talk about my pregnancy and my labor? Like there's so many ways to have those conversations. And I, those are the conversations that I have with my clients about how to communicate with your care provider to make that um, experience a little bit better, right? And that takes a whole weight off of a mother. Because if you're going into the, the doctor for prenatal checkups every week and you're walking in with all this anxiety and you're not able to express yourself, then those things you internalize and then it goes into your baby's growth and development. So it, those, it's very important for mommies to understand um, how that's all connected and it all can be, you know, you can be affected and the baby can be affected. So, yeah, that's kind of what I do when talking with mothers. Yeah, and it seems like self-advocacy is really the, the cornerstone of empowerment here in these situations, and it's really how we're going to fight against these systems that keep us from being able to make decisions about our own bodies as women. Mm-hmm. And as women, we have to continue to push forward and, and continue to see those changes happen and make, you know, make those changes happen with our voices and, and through community and helping each other and uplifting each other and empowering each other. That's how it's going to happen and continue to to get better from here and encouraging more women to go into midwifery is something that we have to start doing and be becoming doulas. It's important work. And I don't even, I don't even like to put a label on it anymore really, because it's not even about whether or not you're a doula or have a label or have some type of uh, licensure or certification. It really is just about community and being able to help. You don't have to have, a certification to come in and cook a meal. You don't have to have a certification to come in and hold the baby while mommy takes a shower or um, you don't need a certification to throw some clothes in a laundry machine. You know, it's just the whole idea of bringing community back. And I think that's what midwifery, what really encapsulates the whole thing with midwifery is community. It's about community. And that's what made midwives and especially grand midwives an important cornerstone of the community because they were able to bridge those gaps. It's just a beautiful thing. And, and yeah, the art of midwifery is not necessarily the actual art of giving birth or learning how to birth children, but it's the community idea of community, right? And then everything else falls into place. Well, I'm so happy that we had this conversation. I'm so happy that I met you, Nafisa. I'm happy that I met you too. Um, and if people want to find out more about your services, Nafisa, how can they do that? Where can they go to find you? They can reach me at, they can reach me by email at nafisathedoula at gmail.com. I am on Instagram as Nafisa the Dream Doula. I'm also on Facebook under Daughters of Daisy Marie Doula Services. Um, my website is down right now and in, in, in a work in progress because I'm making some changes. And I do accept clients two to three times a year. I'm not, um, I like to have really in-depth relationships with my mommies. And so I'm not one of those doulas that do back-to-back clients, but I do like to create relationships with my clients and really work with them on deeper levels and long-term. So that's kind of the transition I'm making right now. So yeah, if anybody's interested in doula, uh, having a doula or becoming a doula, they can reach me there. And also on Instagram at the Embegu Birthing Project of Mobile. And we're also on Facebook under the Embirthing Project of Mobile. So yeah, 
that's not, that's how you can reach me. Are you saying, can you say that one more time? In birthing? Mbegu. Mbegu birthing project. Mbegu oh. means seeds in Swahili. Oh, it's okay. We're planting seeds for the future. That. And so that's how we came up with that name. So it's called the Mbegu Birthing Project of Mobile. Yeah. Oh, that reminds me of Octavia Butler's seeds in um, the parable of the sower. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm also seeing a lot of beautiful herbs behind you. And so you do have another business for people who are interested in mm-hmm. tinctures and things. Can you quickly say yep. something about that? Yep. Nittygrittyskincare.com is our other business. We do, again, black soap, shea butter. I do handcrafted uh, herbal tinctures. I have also herbal teas. I do herbal teas for pregnant mommies. And I have a dream, herbal dream blend that's phenomenal for people who have trouble sleeping. Uh, And also a wellness blend for this time of year and to help um, have preventative care for the virus. So we have all kinds of goodies on our website and we ship anywhere uh, in the United States. Okay. Well, thank you, Nafisa, so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was fun. The Fem South is a podcast and book club community produced in the Deep South. We are dedicated to educating, supporting, and empowering women through feminist theory and community. We are intersectional, we are inclusive, and we believe there is no one way to be a feminist. Feminism is an ongoing journey of self-discovery and activism. Our book club is an ongoing exchange between theory and embodiment. And we are simply here to hold space for this collective journey. If you want to get involved with FemSouth, you can go to our website at FemSouth.com and sign up for our newsletter. If you would like to be a part of our book club, you can ask to join our private Facebook book club group where we read and discuss books online. You can also follow us on Instagram and listen to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play. We'd really appreciate it if you would give us some feedback and a rating so that we can know what you, dear listeners, are thinking. If you feel motivated to support us, you can head over to our Patreon account, Patreon slash where you can select your monetary gift. So until next time, you've been listening to Fem South. Mm-hmm.